So this is a kind of mysterious time in the retreat, down, down a tiny bit. I'm on number six. Try that, <clears throat> not too far down, somewhere in the middle. How's that? <clears throat> this is kind of a mysterious time in the retreat to be checking the sound. Um, Oh, it's over on that side, okay. How's that? I can't even tell where it is, I don't know. And, you know, at this point, I think that's probably okay. What you can feel, no matter what particular moments, cycle your retreat is in right now, is that there has been, on the whole, a growing mindfulness, and a growing stillness, and a growing openness or tenderness. It's almost like when the First, it's kind of space explorations were going to happen, and they didn't have the rockets to put people into space. The early test pilots and so forth would fly their jets as high as they possibly could, you know, until there wasn't enough oxygen for the engine to go, and then they'd kind of coast and make a big arc somewhere at the top of, you know, 80,000 feet or 60,000, whatever it was, and coast back down to earth. And for the time they were at the top of the arc for a little while, there was almost no gravity and they got the feeling of what it was like to float that would later be the 24-hour experience in the space stations. You have less gravity. For moments. For a moment. Or maybe even for some days or weeks. Yes, gravity too has its changes, that's right. And so what I want to do is encourage you tonight to stay with this arc of experience, um, to be present, to kind of harvest the fruit of your insights and your practice. Um, At this time, in a way, we have 10 days or so left in the month of March for our retreat. It's like the beginning of a 10-day retreat, which most people don't get to do more than a 10-day retreat. You're just starting. (laughs) And all kinds of things could happen. So you're in this arc. um, Stay with it. Now, we said that our theme over the course of this month would be to talk about the qualities of the awakened heart and mind, the Brahma-viharas, the spiritual faculties, and the factors of enlightenment. Tonight I don't want to talk about the factors which arise, but I want to talk about the other part of that phrase, the enlightenment part. Because the purpose of the factors of enlightenment is to describe those qualities that grow in us 
mindfulness, calm, concentration, investigation, equanimity, etc., etc., when they mature in us, that allow us to open to a whole new way of being or seeing. And the thing about speaking about enlightenment is that it is mysterious. But that's because everything's mysterious. And as someone said, the mystery of the universe is not a problem to solve, but a reality to experience. My good friend, Dina Metzger, who's gone around the world many times in these recent decades to work with the elders of tribal communities and shamans and medicine people and uh, wise women and men all around the world to try and get them to vision how we can respond to the dilemmas of the world. And she said that her dream had actually been not just to meet with the wise people, but to meet also with the elders of the four-legged kingdom um, and to sit in council as she did with the elephants. So they went to, um, first I think to Zimbabwe and then to Botswana and spent some time with some of the Ngangas who are the shamans and sages of that area. And she talked about this dream and they said, sure, you know, let's get a truck, we'll do it. And they drove down into the Okavanga Delta in a flatbed truck and somewhere near a watering hole there and sat six or eight of them in the back of the truck for about an hour in council and made prayers out loud and visioned the elephants and visioned all beings kind of looking at the difficulties and the possibilities and the beauty of the earth. And then this one elephant walked down from the ridge far away. You could see it walked all the way down the riverbed, walked right over to them. And as she said, came from, could see it from a mile away, faced us directly, acknowledged us, walked until he was only three feet from them, looked us directly in the eye and put his head in the truck with the back of the truck with everybody else and stood that way for 20 minutes. And then acknowledged them again and left. And they were, they were like, wow, okay, we, we did it, you know. Was really... And she said it was amazing because she said, it just completely warped my consciousness. I realized that we're not alone, that there's something bigger in this universe that we participate in, that something bigger than this small human sense of separation that we live in. And then as they got ready to leave, she said, this elephant came back, they were driving out a dry riverbed and brought with it dozens of elephants that lined the riverbed where their kind of exit road was and somehow acknowledged them as they, as they went out. You know, and they sat with the elephant there and meditated and did prayers and talked about you know, the sacredness of life with the elephant and everybody there. So it's kind of wild, this incarnation, really, and we forget about it. But it's pretty mysterious. Einstein says, the most beautiful and profound emotion we can experience is the sensation of the mystical. It is the root, the sower, the, the, the foundation of all true science. And to 
one in whom this emotion is a stranger, who can no longer wonder and stand wrapped in awe, is not still alive. So we get quiet and we begin in this mysterious way to touch something that's bigger than ourselves, than our everyday preoccupation, our limited perceptions. As Pablo Neruda says, what we know is so little, what we presume is so much. And that was really what, when Leela was talking about the skandhas and talked about the skandha perception and all the kind of ways we think we understand. And yet something starts to happen in a month or two of silence and listening where that sense of, small sense of self starts to quiet down or dissolve or open, not all the time. I mean, I know you're on your way to lunch thinking about, you know, your taxes or whatever, you know that, but, but there are gaps, there, there are breaks, you know, there are, it's not solid. And, and the gaps, as Chogyam Trumpa said, are extremely good news. I am not I, writes one Ramon Jimenez. I am this one walking beside me who I do not see, whom at times I manage to visit and at other times I forget. The one who remains silent when I talk. The one who forgives sweet when I hate. The one who takes a walk when I am indoors. The one who will remain standing when I die. Who are we? Who do we take ourselves to be? We identify with the skandhas, as Leela talked about, our body, our feelings, our perceptions, our thoughts, our consciousness. But there's something so much bigger that's happening. There's a book by Paul Pearsall called The Heart's Code. He's a scientist who went and did research on a succession of people who received heart transplants. And he tells these really wild stories. One of them, I won't read the whole story, but is of a a young doctor. She and her husband were both physicians and they were driving along and they were having a bit of an argument in the car. And um, rainy night, flash of lights, truck came on the wrong side of the road, terrible crash, um, both in the hospital, her husband died. And because he was young and had signed the organ donation thing, his heart was given to some young man who needed it. And so she wanted to meet the person who got her husband's heart. These all these stories of heart transplants. And so one of the stories is of this meeting. And here she is, she's being taken by Paul, um, to meet this young man who is a young um, Latino guy, probably maybe 17 years old, who came in with his mother. Um, and they're just sitting there, and he's so grateful because he, he could live. He needed this heart, you know. 
And then she says, could I, could I touch it? Could I touch your chest? Could I touch my, my, his, your heart? An amazing, think about that, you know? And because she was a doctor and it was a hustle, okay, and she touched it. And as she touched his chest, she said, um, as if speaking to David, her husband, everything is copacetic now. And the mother, who was not very fluent in English, um, an immigrant who hadn't learned fluent English yet, Spanish was her native language, um, uh, eyes got really wide. She said, copacetic. My son, David, he uses that word all the time now. I never heard him say it before he got his new heart. And, and, and she said, uh, Glenda said, well, it was the word we used when we would make up after we'd had an argument, which was the last thing that happened before he died. And I just needed to say it to him somehow. She's weeping. And the mother said, I don't understand. My son started saying copacetic, you know. And other weird things happened, too. He started to play, you know, guitar, and he liked to play, like, 1960s rock and roll. He never, before that, he was doing hip-hop. And she said, oh, yeah, David was a guitarist in a 60s rock band. All these really strange things. What we know is so little, what we presume is so much. Who are we? I was teaching with Thich Nhat Hanh in Los Angeles some years ago at a big conference for psychologists and Eastern Western psychology. And as he began to teach, he started with a story. And he said, the day my mother died, I experienced a profound grief. He said, I wrote in my journal some years ago, a great suffering of my life has arrived and I wept and grieved for a long time. And then one day, a few years later, I was sitting in my little hut in the hermitage in the highlands of Vietnam. And I went to sleep and I had a dream of my mother. And I dreamt that I was sitting there talking with her, listening to her and her long, beautiful hair flowing down, looking at me, it was so pleasant to be with my mother, who I missed so much because I really had loved her. And I was in this dream talking with her as if she had never died. And I woke up, it was two in the morning, and I felt very strongly that I had never lost my mother. The impression that my mother was still here was so clear. And I understood that the idea of losing my mother was untrue, that my mother was always alive in me. And I opened the door and went outside. It, the hillside was covered with moonlight and I walked between the rows of the tea plantation, tea plants. And as the moonlight caressed my skin, it felt like my mother touching me so gently the way she had. The moonlight was my mother. And every time my feet touched the earth, I also knew this was my mother with me. I felt this body wasn't mine, but a living continuation of my mother and father, grandparents and great-grandparents, of all my ancestors. And the feet that I saw as my feet were actually our feet. 
Together, my mother and I were leaving footprints in the damp soil. And we know this in some way. I mean, what he's describing is an intuition and an opening and a knowledge of that which is timeless, eternal, outside of the sense that we take of our ordinary small sense of self. And as we practice over this time, resting in the space of awareness, developing mindfulness, concentration, calm, investigation, these qualities, we begin to dissolve the solidity of ourself and our boundaries with the world, which is mostly made up of the glue of who we think we are. They start to quiet down and open up. And as we open, we experience what Trudy described as the universal level of experience, which is emphasized so much in the in the monasteries of Asia, Thailand, Burma, places I practiced, Anicca and Dukkha and Anatta and so forth. Because as we become more present, our experience arises and passes moment to moment. And we see a breath come and go and thoughts appear and opinions and judgments come and go and sensations and we feel one big sensation and it turns into that solid sensation into a hundred little microscopic sensations of fire and heat and trembling and cold and pinpricks. And it's, um, it starts to dissolve, doesn't it? I mean, the more we pay attention, we begin to sense the river of experience that's appearing, that makes up our body sense, our breath, all that Leela talked about. The five skandhas are really the five rivers. And they become visible in this new way. Like the Buddha says, a star at dawn, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a rainbow, an echo, a phantom, a dream. All these images that are used because we see a thought appear and disappear, an opinion of how we should be, a judgment, an emotion comes and then it dissolves into nothing. And this seeing of the evanescence of the river of life, that it's impermanent, it's selfless, we can't own it. It's insubstantial. It's aided by the factors of samadhi, of focus and calm and clarity, and sometimes a very powerful samadhi that develops for some of us. And we start to see the emptiness of things, not that they're not here, but that they don't last but a moment. The rivers, they're born out of nothing, a thought appears out of where? And then it goes back into the void with all the other stuff that's there. And I mean, it's astonishing. It's just the line from Rumi, it comes trooping out of emptiness, does its thing on stage, and all your, I mean, think how many thoughts you've had this retreat. It's a good thing Google doesn't have to kind of keep them on the server or something. I mean, it's really, it's insane. And how many emotions and sensations arising. And so there comes this kind of universal sense 
a shift from the small sense of self, of me and mine, identifying with our perceptions and beliefs and thoughts, to sensing that it is a, a dance of energy in life. Kalu Rinpoche, he writes, you live in the illusion and the appearance of things, or he taught this, you live in the illusion, the appearance of things. There is a reality, but you do not know it. And when you understand, you'll see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you're everything. That is all. An amazing statement. It's really not a philosophical statement. It's a as you let go and open, you start to see that you're less and less who you thought you were. Boundaries go away, thoughts, feelings come and go, that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. Or Bishop Tutu, who writes in Africa, when you ask someone, how are you? The reply is always in the plural. A person would say, we are well or we are not well. He himself may be quite well, but his grandmother is not well. So he is not well either. Our humanity is interwoven with one another's. The solitary, isolated human being is an imagined fiction. And so we start to, as we get quiet, start to see the ephemerality of things, the boundaries start to loosen. And we also start to feel then a deeper connection. And I see people wandering outside there you know, looking strange as we all do, right? Especially on retreat, looking at a flower. And it's like, wow, am I the flower? Am I the person looking, you know? The, the, and and it's, you start to feel that you're looking at your relatives. You have the same last name as the oak tree and the bay tree. and This is part of your family. Not as an idea, but, but that experience of the bark and your sight and the almost taste it and feel it. And we're alive with the world. Do you understand? And it's, it's really beautiful. And you start to see impermanence, selflessness, not clinging, you see all the universal truths. But you also see, and certainly how we're practicing here, how this is wedded with a personal level in this wild way. So there's the heart's code that I read, you know, somebody gets this new heart and with it they get a kind of, you know, new taste in music and some language and various things. It's really wild, but it's there, it's held in our body and in the psyche and in the mind and in the history. I don't even know how to describe it, but it's there. And so just as things become evanescent, and transparent and silent and appearing and disappearing, there's less sense of solidity of self. Also your history comes and your trauma, you know, and the foster home you were put in or the neglect of your childhood or the loss of a loved one or parent or brother or sister or the addiction or the time somebody told you you were worthless or the abortions or the accident that happened or I work with vets you know, and um, they'll say things like, I can't tell you what I saw. And just horrific images from war. And then pause and say, and I can't tell you what I did. And that's really the heartbreak. And so we have our 
personal holdings, stash, trauma, history. And we also have the kind of collective history. You know, if you're born in this culture and you're gay, I read that letter, you know, the, am I gorgeous, remember that letter? Um, in a homophobic society, you know, you get attacked from early on. Or the, you know, sexism. Would I remember this woman that I worked with who was one of the five daughters of the founder of one of the biggest corporations in the whole world. And he really despised, had no regard for women. She wrote me a poem. And it said, um, in the poem it was that... Um, her father would come home, it was this sort of a dream poem, and take his daughters in the basement and break their wings. And she carried that, you know, or the, the insanity of racism, where somebody's born and they're just looking out and they're an innocent human being. And then because of the craziness of culture and attachment and, and um, ignorance that's so deep, it's as if, well, this color is better than that, or this race, or this. It's just, and that gets internalized over and over and over again. And then that person, you know, comes, whoever it is. We all have that original innocence in us. And it gets robbed in some ways or taken. And the Buddha was absolutely adamant. He said, O oh, nobly born you, who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones, do not forget who you really are. He was adamant about this. Not by caste or race or creed or anything. This is your nobility. I was just reading about this very important public health study called the ACE study, Adverse Childhood Experience Study, done by the CDC and other things. And it said, duh, that if there is a lot of trauma in childhood, <laughs> your health isn't very good, your mental health, your well-being, all that stuff doesn't really, it, it, it plays out later in your life. You carry it. Now science knows this. I'm glad to hear that. Thank you. <laughs> you know. But here it's really more heartbreak. And the medicine of the Dharma is the medicine for suffering for universal suffering, for personal suffering. Ajahn Chah never made any difference. He didn't say, okay, that's your family history and that's your stuff with money where you know you lost your crop or your, you know, that's when your farm house burned and that's, you know, and this is, this is emptiness and this is, you know, mindfulness as if they were somehow separate worlds. This is one life. And so we bring our whole humanity and what happens in the personal realm is that, um, especially the way we're practicing here, is that we allow that too to be met with the same factors of enlightenment, of calm and equanimity and mindfulness and loving kindness, the Brahma Viharas, and let it open. And sometimes it's an ocean of tears that the Buddha called it. Rage, storm clouds, fear, loss, stuff in the body. And we'll sit with you and say, all right, name it. Tears, tears. And, you know, it seems like the tears will never end. Or fear or confusion. And if you make space, and if we sit together and do it, or you do it in your own way, 
and you let the loss and the grief get as big as it wants to, and the tears flood the land like the rain, tears, tears, weeping, endless, endless, it will never, you know, desperation, loss, and it feels, and you just name it and allow it. Something else comes. The clouds weep themselves to the end. The, the pain starts to open to something else because it was held inside and it needed to be allowed. The deficiency opens into space and joy, calm, ease, amazing things come from allowing this opening that are equally enlightening, equally liberating to anicca, dukkha, anatta, emptiness. They're just different dimensions of liberation. And we get the honor of of witnessing this in you. Sometimes it's the universal, all the sorrows of the world, the Buddha's truth of suffering. Sometimes it's your own heartbreak. And they come at different times together, they weave together in the opening. And as you stay with it, and this ending phase of the retreat is actually a really important time to stay with it because other things want to open then if you tend and practice. We get to witness you becoming free. And it's a very beautiful thing to see the flowering, the healing, the liberation. Because there's some sense in this that as things open, you realize this is not who I really am. This pain or this suffering or trauma, I mean, we're loyal to it, but there's somehow things start to break open. And the fear of the fullness of your humanity with its 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows starts to dissolve, and the space of the liberated heart opens in you. And it has all these, you know, it has both this, as Trudy talked about, both this very quite universal dimension and this intimate, immediate, personal dimension. I remember being with Sri Nisargadat, this old guru in Bombay. Um, and I visited him and spent time with him over several different years. And he was really quite an amazing teacher in the Advaita tradition. He was somehow a cross between Krishnamurti, this kind of immense clarity and and Fritz Perls, like he just wanted to engage you when you walked in the room, okay, tell me what you know. He was really pushy, you know. Um, and we'd talk to, he would talk about, he'd say, you take yourself to be the body. You think you know your, your food? I mean, who do you think you are? You're not the food body. That would be an insult. Do you think you're your feelings? You know? He said, I am none of these things. This is just, this has nothing to do with who I am at all. And people would say, well, you're an old man, aren't you, you know, afraid of dying? He said, this has nothing to do with me. Why should I be afraid of dying? And he talked about resting in the consciousness that's the witness to all things and not being caught in all these things. I'm insulted, you say, I will die. You think I'm this body? How could you insult me? What do you think you are? You know, I mean, that would be, you know. Anyway, so I was sitting with him and having dialogues and in really enjoying it because he didn't want anything from anybody. The only thing he wanted was that you'd be as free as he was. That's the only thing he cared about. But there's nothing he wanted from people. So it made me very happy. And then I went off and I did a retreat for a month or two months in the mountains of Sri Lanka. 
And I did a practice that had both great space in it and also kind of profound stillness. And I did it over and over and over for a month or a long time. And I came back, I went back to Bombay, and I was really stoned. I was like, wow, big, vast space. And my mind was very still and concentrated and open. So I went back in, and you don't get to sit in the back when you come to see Nisargadot. You've got to sit in front, you know, and come in, okay, you sit here. So, you know, you're back, he looked at me, kind of stared. I said, I'm not back. I said, this room disappeared, the airplane appeared, mountains appeared. I didn't go anywhere. There's just appearances coming and going. He stood up straight. What are you talking? You know, it's like, like, is this a rap? Or, but I was just so dissolved. And, and he said, who do, you, you know, who do you think you are? And we kind of went back and forth. And I was just so empty that he started to laugh. And he said, yeah, this is it. You know, this is really, you know. And of course, that was fine. I'd not even pride. It was like, okay. And I'm just sitting there feeling very present with him. It was quite beautiful. And then at the end of this dialogue, he looked at me and he said, so, no more fear now ever, right? And the minute he said that, I could think of different things I'd be afraid of in the future. <laughs> you know, I just, it just all arose. And he saw it, you know. He, I, I didn't have to say it. He, he said, yeah, that's it. That's, there you go. go. Go in the back of the room now. That's, you know. I, I now know how it would have been. It's like a koan. No more fear ever, you know. And somehow I got into believing that there shouldn't be fear. I now know how I would answer him. I'll leave that to you. <laughs> but I know exactly. And it came in the retreat. I realized I had this dialogue in my mind with him. We had a good dialogue. But anyway. Um, but the interesting thing in this is this paradox. Because the small sense of self is also sometimes called the body of fear. The sense of separation. You know... When we feel separate, then fear arises. Um, Ramdas puts it this way. He says, you need to remember your Buddha nature, free, timeless, awakened. And you also have to remember your social security number or your zip code or something like that. And that to be liberated is to honor the personal and the universal. And so as you get quiet, you start to see that self or no self are also functions. Sometimes there's a lot of self, sometimes there's a little bit of self, sometimes there's no sense of self. And self isn't a problem. I mean, you kind of need a healthy sense of self. Well, half of Buddhism is cultivating healthy qualities, patience and steadiness and um, determination and virtue and concentration and calm. There's a healthy sense of self. But you just don't attach to it. This is me and mine. But there's a, there is. And you notice sometimes there's a lot of self, sometimes medium. You don't have to get rid of it. You just have to understand it so that you can use it wisely. That's all. You're not trying to get rid of anything. You rest in what Oscar Wilde called the tainted glory of humanity with smallness and largeness and fear and fearlessness. All of these things. And as you practice here, you become more free. 
not so loyal to your suffering. It's not that you don't suffer, but that identification so much with it. You start to sense, who am I? Who would I be if I wasn't so stuck on the ideas and fears and past and what I want? Viktor Frankl, who said, we who lived through the concentration camps can remember those who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but their very existence proves the final freedom for humankind, the freedom of spirit, to choose your spirit, no matter what the circumstance. And it's like Nelson Mandela walking out of Robben Island prison after all those years with such magnanimity and dignity and freedom of heart after everything that had happened to him. This is liberation. And this liberation is experienced by you as you practice. It's not to get rid of experience, not to get rid of the skandhas. You will have the river of feelings, the river of thoughts, the river of perceptions. But how, asked the Buddha, can such a one who is liberated as I explain or or offer to you the understanding of freedom? Seeing misery in every view, in every opinion, in every philosophy, in every religion, without adopting any of them, I discovered true peace. Not by philosophical opinion or tradition or virtue or holy works, nor the absence of these. Not by thinking myself equal to or superior or inferior, but abandoning all these, calm and independent, not falling into any resting place of the mind, not grasping. An accomplished person does not become arrogant, not led, not of that sort, not by holy works or tradition or the ways it's supposed to be, not led into any of the sticking places of the mind. How could anyone influence the wise ones who do not grasp at any view? But those who grasp after views and philosophical opinions, they wander about the world annoying people. It's kind of one of his little humorous lines that you don't see so often. But it's really an amazing thing that the Buddha is saying here. He's not saying there isn't body, you know, form, feelings, perceptions, thoughts, consciousness. But the awakened consciousness does not take a stand in any of these, does not grasp, does not say, this I am, this is me, this is so. And this middle, it's extraordinary middle, which is the middle way between all the opposites. Make the smallest distinction and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart, says the third Zen ancestor. Do not remain in the dualistic state. If there's a trace of right and wrong, you'll be lost in confusion. All these beautiful words. 
infinitely large, infinitely small, no difference, no boundaries. Don't waste time in doubt and argument. Just come to rest with things as they are. To live in this realization is to be without anxiety about imperfection. Because the non-dual or awakening is one with a trusting mind. Self, no self, function. Determinism and freedom, question that came up. Joy, suffering. Maybe the answer is yes. <laughs> you don't have to take a position, but rather there's, ah, yes, this is, isn't this mysterious? That there's form and emptiness. That there's this vast unfolding that we are, that we are. And that we also can sense ourselves somehow separate in it. And I had the gift and the trouble in my training in Asia to have teachers who express this in really different ways. Mahasi Sayadaw's way of coming to this understanding was the microscopic attention, moment to moment, until everything dissolved into little pixels of sensations and thoughts, and you became so mindful, sitting and walking, sitting and walking, as I did, I did a retreat for a year and a half, while you're doing, in silence. Everything just dissolved and opened. He said, this is the way to enlightenment. It was pretty cool. And I went back to visit Ajahn Chah, where I'd been practicing and living. And I told him about, oh, dissolving my body into light or having things, you know, everything was open and transparent and all these kind of things. All these great experiences. And he nodded, you know, familiar to him. He liked it. And he said, yeah, something else to let go of, huh? You know, and that was his response. That was the past. Now is now. His teaching was that every moment is either suffering or freedom. And it didn't matter. Yes, you could have samadhi experiences and insights. Great. You know, you could also be, you know, pouring the milk rice into the bowl or cleaning the, you know, dishes. And if there was a self that came and said, I'm not the person who should be cleaning the dishes, someone else should, and all that stuff, you know, or he said, there's suffering and there's the end of suffering. He said, when you identify, there are all these changing conditions, and the unconditioned is to rest in awareness, which is not ever tainted by changing conditions. You identify with everything. Don't I, you, know, you don't have to identify. You can see identification. This does not have anything to do with me. And when you come to trust the space of awareness, this is enlightenment, this is liberation. So Mahasi Saito and Ajahn Chah had very different practices and different views about all of this. And then I had other teachers, the jhana teachers like Ajahn Jamnian, or more recently, of course, there's Pak Saito, and you do these amazing samadhi practices, and you learn that it's all a play of consciousness. You learn that anyway in the other practices. Or Gosananda, we've been talking about this amazing Cambodian monk who spoke 15 languages. We lived together in monastery for a while and I helped him in the refugee camps. Um, But he spent most of the last years of his life leading peace marches across the killing fields and walking step by step, 
through the jungles with his boots on and his robe, singing metta and telling people, you can't take the bus back to your village. You have to walk back and do loving kindness for every step. And then you reclaim your country, even through like the landmines and so forth. You know, and he would come across people in the woods and people who were bathing, people in this incredibly war-torn, tra- traumatized place. And he would sing to them, metta, and remind them that hatred never ends by hatred, but by love alone is healed. Like he'd just appear in the woods with all these people and bless them and then walk on. And he did it for years and years, um, not as a trial, but out of love. Different way of expressing enlightenment, devotion, if you will. So beautiful. So what is enlightenment? It's the end of wanting to be anywhere else. How's that? I'm serious. You know? It's resting in awareness. If you look in the mirror and you notice you've aged, right? Yes, come on. (laughs) But the weird thing is you don't feel older, right? You know that? Because it's only your body that's aged. And the one who knows that consciousness that's seeing says, hmm, it's aging, it's sagging, you know, this is... There is a knowing that is not, the body is not who you are. You know this. And resting in awareness... Resting in that which is timeless. I am the first and the last. I am the honored one and the scorned. I am the wife and the virgin, the barren one who has borne many sons. I am the bride and the bridegroom. I am incomprehensible silence and the voice whose sound is everywhere. For I am knowledge and ignorance, modesty and boldness. I am the one who is everywhere loved and the one they call the truth. I am learned and unlearned. I am the joining and dissolving. I am what appears and lasts and what disappears. Hear me in softness, learn me in roughness. I am she who cries out and she who answers. I am called truth. And I am the one who alone exists and there is no one to judge me. Awake and you will find me always here, always now. This is from the thunder perfect mind. It's the feminine voice of the timeless. We hear it and it resonates with something that we know. The Buddha was asked by one monk, tell me how is it that we can practice so that we will not be seen by the king of death? Not be seen by the king of death. And the Buddha replied, for one who takes nothing as I or me or mine, such a one will not be seen by the king of death. Doesn't say my thoughts, my view, my body then there's no death. And this is Ajahn Chah's version of enlightenment, the shift of identity, not to take this as me or mine. 
But when you hear this, what happens, and it's really beautiful, you start to sense it, is that enlightenment isn't a thing or a state, but it is the pure opening of consciousness like a multifaceted crystal or a diamond that has many dimensions. And sometimes as you get silent, the dimension of enlightenment you touch is freedom. You just feel free. It's beautiful. And then you turn the crystal a little bit and the dimension of pure consciousness that you experience is love, that everything is connected in love. Turn it again, close to love is oneness. You know, there's this beautiful and deep knowing of oneness. One day when I was sitting there like a motherless child, which I was, writes Alice Walker, it came to me, that feeling of being a part of everything and I knew if I cut a tree, my arm would bleed. And I laughed and I cried and I run all around the house. In fact, when it happens, you just can't miss it. And you know this. And so one dimension of enlightenment is oneness. Another is emptiness. The, the vast, empty, silent, void, the fertile darkness out of which all things come, the pregnant void. And you just notice thoughts disappear and feelings and everything goes back to the void and you really sense it, the ephemeralness of things. Another facet of awakened consciousness is perfection. And maybe you've tasted that at some point in your life where even though there is immense sorrow, there is also a perfection to the weave of the universe that's well, as the third Zen ancestor said, um, to be without anxiety about imperfection is to see somehow the perfection of it all. And another facet is fullness, just as it's empty. It has its creativity. The consciousness itself is the birthplace of everything. Timeless, vast. Sometimes it's joy, another facet. Sometimes it's gratitude infinite gratitude. It's a whole school of Buddhism that just practices infinite gratitude. There is. And so people get in trouble because they think, well, my form of enlightenment's the real one. You know, it's vastness or silence or selflessness or peace. Or, it's got all these dimensions to it. And as we open, we go through these gates of impermanence. Things arise and pass and we start to sense that while everything is impermanent, there is a way of relaxing in it. Achan Shah said the first stage of enlightenment is to know that everything is uncertain. The second stage of enlightenment is to know even more deeply that everything is uncertain. (laughs) And that the fully enlightened person realizes that things are completely uncertain. That was his description. And you relax in that. That's how it is. To the wisdom of insecurity. When we realize the fact that everything changes and find our composure in it, we find ourselves in nirvana, says Suzuki Roshi. Sometimes it's the ocean of tears. You sit and you see dukkha and sorrow. You know, and I remember talking to this one nun who was a teacher of meditation in a convent 
And she said, my realization came on Easter. I was lying there and looking at the crucifix, and it was Easter. And I had the image of Christ on the cross and the Pieta being held by his mother. And all of a sudden I realized that we were all that mother. And I saw all the wars that, uh, you know, the Roman generals and the, the, you know, the wars in Asia and the wars in North America and the wars in Africa, the wars hadn't stopped. And all the young men who are conscripted to go into the wars. And I saw the slaughterhouses and the animals who were being killed. And I, I saw people who'd lost their children. And she said, I just saw, as you do sometimes in meditation, the gate of suffering opens. And then all of a sudden I realized that it wasn't my pain, it was the pain of the world. It was the holy pain, it was the pain. I thought I was the one that suffered. And I realized that they're just, this is the fire sermon. The Buddha said, said, my friends, all is burning. It's burning with, what is it burning? Greed and hate and ignorance. And when you see that it's burning, you let go. The great heart of compassion opens and you're free. And sometimes it happens, it's funny, you know, hear all these great stories. Here I am, a teacher for hundreds of students and Some of them have all these great awakenings and amazing moments, and I've never had them. This is from someone I interviewed. For a long time, this was the hardest thing that nothing ever happened. I'm not a person with dramatic experiences. For 35 years now, it's been a practice of just sitting without being caught by ideas of discouragement or success. I would go for months of retreat and nothing spectacular would happen. This was especially hard for the first 10 years. But at least I never got caught in thinking I was some special person. But somehow things did change. And what most transformed me were the endless hours of mindfulness and loving kindness, giving a caring attention to each thing that I was doing. And I learned about the inner dropping of burdens. It wasn't going to happen in some great big event, but again and again, dropping the burden of judgment, of fear, of distrust, of tightness of body and mind. I could feel how my body was a mirror for grasping and I started to let it go and be easy. And then it dawned on me that there's nothing to get, nowhere to be, just to be where I am, to let go. I started to realize the teachings even though nothing happened. (laughs) And nothing ever does happen and nothing ever will happen. And seeing this was a confirmation somehow, my kindness started to deepen, I got less serious. Oddly, my friends tell me I've become more like myself. There's been this huge change, and yet nothing special ever happened. And we see that in you too. It's so beautiful to see all these different openings.
How will I know if I've tasted enlightenment? People ask. Some teachers say you won't know, maybe. How's that for an answer? Maybe is it worth anything if you don't know? (laughs) But we see it. We really do see it. You know, and it's not in your experience sometimes, one particular experience or another. Sometimes there's insight, sometimes there's slogging through disillusionment. Disillusionment can be enormously enlightening. All the expectations that you had, and finally you just let go and say, well, here I am, world. You know, sometimes it's the tears, sometimes it's a magnificent joy. But it starts to open in you, and you've each tasted it in your own way. Trust it. Remember it. O nobly born, there is a liberation that is your birthright. And you have been practicing and manifesting and awakening this, each of you. If it were not possible to free the heart, said the Buddha, I would not teach you to do so. But just because it is possible to free the heart... There arises the teachings of the Dharma of liberation, and it's offered open-handedly to all. It's a privilege and really a magnificent thing to be practicing together in this way for this long. So I thank you. Let's sit. Trust yourself and your practice. It knows exactly how to unfold. And stay with the beauty of this silence and the retreat. Um, Tomorrow morning, for instructions, we'll do the the big sky bell meditation for those who would like. So, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.